Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode three of our summer series. Today we're going to talk about the shoulders. We talked about the hips last week. It was great to get feedback from all of you about how much you loved that conversation. I think talking about the hips is a perennially popular topic because we all feel so much in our hips and it feels so relieving to work with them and such the foundation of all of our movements. So it's wonderful to learn more about how to work with them in a balanced way. Shoulders, shoulders for me anyway, in the first few years of my practice were the most confounding part of my body. Gaining an awareness of my shoulders, where the outer border was, where the inner border was, were they supposed to go flat on my back? What happened when I raised my arms? All of these things were just confusing for a long time. And I wish I'd had Jason as a teacher at that time because he explains all of the nuances really well. So that's what we're going to cover today. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we get to shoulders, Jason wanted to ask me a little bit about my practice and about the fact that even though I have a lot of range of motion, I still complain about feeling inflexible from time to time. And, you know, part of what comes up in the conversation in this little short blurb from us is how my practice has changed a little bit as I'm starting to age. And this is a great precursor conversation to an interview I have coming up with Desiree Rumbaugh and Michelle Marshallden. They wrote a book called Fearless After 50. And although I'm not 50 yet, I'm not too far away from it. And I just think it's it's great to talk about the fact that we are all going to age. We are all aging. And I also just love that we are starting to reconceptualize how we think about aging and how we use our bodies as we age and trying to work with the fears that come up and really face them head on and keep using our bodies. It's just so important. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's something we can all talk about. I also am just remembering as I'm talking right now that I wrote a blog post a few years ago on my birthday about how I'm never going to lie about my age. So I'm going to put that blog post on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 55. And Jason is sticking close to home this summer, which Sophia and I are just so happy about. But he does have one trip coming up to New York from August 11th through the 13th. It's a three-day teacher renewal training, and there are a few spots left. It's at Yoga Works. This training is incredibly popular. It's really a nice opportunity for teachers to get some rejuvenation time, focus on their own practice in the morning. And then in the afternoon, there are talks about key components of being a yoga teacher. Really, it's it's very practical, strategic, tactical, you know, ideas for how to earn a living, how to hone your sequencing, how to fine tune your manual adjustments and your verbal cues. So you can find more information if you go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule and you click through on the link to the training in New York, you'll learn more details. So Andrea, when we did the hips podcast, we were talking about the inner legs, the adductors. 
And you said that your inner legs used to be really flexible, Mm -hmm. that they used to be really flexible. Now, I've actually, you you don't know this, but I've used you as an example from time to time with the following observation. I will see you get down on the ground, do Pachimottanasana. When you do Pachimottanasana, you sit on the ground, you lay your entire torso (laughs) all the way down, your head comes to the shins. There's not a morsel of space between the front of your torso and the front of your legs. And then you will sit up and you will say, oh man, I feel really tight today. (laughs) I do, I do. (laughs) Okay, all right. So I guess the question that I wanna get at, right, is I wanna ask you a little bit about your practice, but I also want to sort of get at this idea of the difference between how something feels in the body Versus what something looks like in the body. Because from the outside, it does not look like your adductors have gotten any tighter. From the outside, it doesn't look like your hamstrings have gotten any tighter. I've seen you practice. I've watched you practice for 15 years. On the outside, it doesn't look different. On the outside, it looks the same. But on the inside, maybe it feels tighter. Oh, yeah. So that's sort of what I want to get at is how has your practice been feeling lately? But also, can you address this observation of, from the outside, you are as mobile as you've ever been in those poses, but from the inside, maybe it doesn't quite feel that way. You remember Natasha Rosopoulos? I do. She's a wonderful yoga teacher. She is one of the most flexible humans you will ever see. I remember having a conversation five years ago with Natasha about this, and she said, yeah, it wasn't until I hit 40 that I was like, oh. That's what it feels like to feel your hamstrings. Mm. So you didn't even used to feel that? No. You You just like lay down. You don't feel anything. Yeah. I've always been tight in my IT bands and in my gluteals because of years of ballet, right? Of like rotating the thighs outward and squeezing in. I have a, a really anomalous body in that way in that I came to yoga with some disproportionately tight areas compared to how open I am in other areas. So like adductors, inner legs, super open, hamstrings, super open, but my external hip rotators, like tight relatively to the rest of the body. My yoga practice feels great. And you do pop in and out while I'm doing my yoga practice. So you might see me in the middle or toward the end when I'm more warmed up. Fair enough. But everything just, it just all takes a little longer to to warm up these days. So I'm very cautious actually about I bend my knees and my forward bends and my first few forward bends because I have sort of a weird trick hamstring on the left side. I swear, (laughs) I'm like a horse. Like this, it just spasms sometimes now. Um, I greet my body a little bit differently than I used to. I would say the upside to my practice now compared to when I was younger is that I used to be so focused on flexibility that I never fully understood how beneficial strength could have been to my body. And right. now I do. Right. So now I spend- I mean, that's one of the keys things that we're, we're talking yes, about more and more in, in all of these. Yeah. And I literally cannot believe how much better I feel in my yoga practice since I started lifting weights. And it's not like I'm like lifting a lot of weight or even that often, like just twice a week at the gym, maybe three times, small increments at a time. And I feel like a rock star in my chaturanga now, which I never did yeah. before. So, you know, I think- like, oh, well, what if I had had that that presence of mind to really cultivate strength when I had been that open? You know, what would have been available to me that I never did? Yeah. 
But there are things available to me now that just like an, a comfort and an ease in my practice that, that, that didn't I didn't have there. 15 years ago, for sure. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jason. Hey, Andrea. Here we are. We are at episode three of our six-part summer podcast series. And today, we're going to talk about the most mobile joint in the body. The most mobile sets of joints. Sets of joints in the body. The shoulders. Oh, man. That's why you're the professional and I'm just the, I'm just the spokesperson. Far from it. All right. So, shoulders are complicated. Yes. And easily... Well, maybe I shouldn't go to the negative place already. No. I was going to say easily injured. They're incredibly mine are dynamic. always injured. <laughs> They're incredibly dynamic and super awesome. Okay. And sometimes with incredibly dynamic and super awesome things, you have a lot of factors that can get off kilter. Are you talking about yourself right now? I'm talking about my psycho-emotional state. <laughs> my sweet little fragile yoga teacher. No, but what I'm really talking about is the shoulders because that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about today. Okay. Focusing. Yeah. Part of what makes the shoulders so uniquely awesome is also part of what makes them complicated and sometimes prone to challenges. So each shoulder is really a combination of four joints. There's three true joints and then one pseudo sort of joint, 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 but sort of pseudo. So that's on each side. So there's a joint where your breastbone and your collarbones come together collarbone. There's a joint where your collarbone and your scapula come together. That's two. There's the main or primary ball and socket joint. That's where the upper arm and the scapula come together. So that's three. And then that fourth sort of joint, sort of pseudo joint, depending on how you categorize it, is where the scapula and the thorax or the rib cage come together. So what I'm getting at here is you have four joints on each side. And one of those joints is a ball and socket joint. What this means is there's an extreme amount of motion and dynamic human experience that we do through the shoulders. And anytime you have this many variables, four joints, and one of those joints being a ball and socket that moves in a bunch of combinations of directions, well, through the normal course of human life and through doing yoga, sometimes we get excess stress in parts of those joints. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that's really challenging about the shoulder joints in general is they have to have the dual function of being incredibly mobile and yet stable. So we have to think about how we've used our shoulders, not just in our lifetimes, but species-wide, how they've evolved. And the shoulder is largely as mobile as it is so that you can do what you do with your hands. The shoulders give hands even greater dynamic ability to get out into space and to do various things, okay? But you can't reach your hand out in space and do something dynamic and then have your shoulder fall off. So you have to have these incredibly mobile structure that at the same time needs to be stable. And just in engineering, that's hard. It's hard to do it. So... You know, so oftentimes we have shoulder inflammations or shoulder injuries in part because we do so much with them and because it's so complicated. When it comes to vinyasa-based yoga, I think one of the big challenges is that 
we very early in a vinyasa practice put a lot of stress on the shoulders. We start doing down dog, we start doing plank, chaturanga, up dog, and we don't necessarily do it with a high level of skill yet. I know that I didn't. I know it took me a long time to do what I do with my shoulders skillfully. I just muscled through and pushed through. But I tell my students all the time, if there's one place that you need to be technically accurate in your yoga practice, it's your shoulders. And then when it's a back class, I say, if there's one place you need to be technically <laughs> accurate, it's your back. <laughs> and then it, but, but so point is, is this high mobility, complexity of the shoulder joint leads to some inherent vulnerability. And when we do vinyasa-based yoga, that means we need to try to really be technically proficient with how we use our shoulders. Can I ask a question? It's, I mean, it's a slight non sequitur. Do you find that like if someone comes to you, a man or a woman, or just from what you see in your students in general, that men or women who are who come to yoga who already appear to be strong and stable in their shoulders, do they experience fewer injuries than someone like me who just has sort of really I really struggle to maintain strength in my upper body? Uh, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. I really don't know. Like I haven't looked at that anecdotally. Yeah. Logically, that would make sense, but anecdotally, I don't know the answer. And then, to actually, you—that you, wouldn't make sense for you. You've always been had pretty strong um, shoulders, and you have had shoulder injuries. I have had shoulder injuries. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. anyway, okay. Yeah, um, I've had a couple impingement issues on my left sh- left side, and I still have to be really careful to not get in the in the weeds on those. And I don't. Again, I don't mean to go off too far into the weeds, but it just might be interesting for people to know that. Potentially, you can bring injuries with you from a previous sport or something sure. like that, that that might not appear until you're doing yoga, until you yeah. do something different. Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I feel like that might have been the case for you. Is that you know, I don't think it's the case for me, honestly. Oh, okay. I think that's more the lower back injuries that I've had and some of the weird hip stuff that I've had. Okay, and, but but re- I don't believe shoulders. In part because my right side through hockey was more, much more of my impact side, but it's my left side that I've had more injuries in yoga with. Okay. So my right side was crunched, you know, a, a ton, whereas my left side had it, but it's the left side that, that has more issues. Anyways. Okay. So here we have these incredibly dynamic structures, these incredibly mobile structures, and this structure that is by nature, the ball and socket of the shoulder is by nature much less structurally stable than the ball and socket of the hip. The ball and socket of the shoulder has not evolved to be a primary weight-bearing structure. The ball and socket of the hip has. So when we look at the ball and socket of the hip, the entire circumference of the head of the femur is encircled by bone which creates a relatively stable structure. When we look at the upper arm bone, as it connects to the scapula, it's not encircled by bone at all. And only about 30 to 60% of the upper arm bone is even in contact with another bone. What forms the shoulder socket is largely soft tissue. It's the rotator cuff and the rotator rotator cuff tendons. What forms the the hip is bone. This makes the shoulder more mobile. This is really awesome. It's a more mobile socket 
but it's also a more vulnerable socket, especially under weight bearing. And in normal day-to-day life, that's not so much of an issue. Come to my vinyasa class, and I won't castigate vinyasa yoga. I'll say, you come to my class, and you're going to spend probably about as much time on your shoulder joints as you are your hip joints. And what that means is you have to be that much more technically sound in order to bear weight because it because you can't get away with the same mistakes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We start to get inflammation issues, whether it's impingement or rotator cuff or biceps tendonitis or, you know, labrum issues. I mean, any number of things can show up pretty easily if we don't work with the shoulders with a, with a real high level technical proficiency in detail, especially the older we get. Mm-hmm. So where do you start? Um, here's where I start. I start just really like in other regions of the body that we've spoken about. I start with an appraisal of the sequence. What I used to do forever is I looked at individual poses and I'd say, okay, let's look at the technique and the alignment of these poses. And let's look at the psychology of how we're approaching these poses. I still think those things are important, obviously, but I really think even more importantly is stepping back and assessing the sequence because the sequence is where we expose our shoulders and the various different parts of our body to different degrees of stress. And what I see when I step back from a vinyasa sequence is we spend a lot of time in down dog. We spend a lot of time in plank. We spend a lot of time in chaturanga. And we spend a lot of time with the arms reaching out to the side in warrior two and side plank poses. In very general terms, what that does is that tends to create strength in the shoulders in the actions of elevating the arm, the action of reaching the arm straight forward, and the action of reaching the arm straight out to the side. So we tend to do a decent job of strengthening the top and the front of the shoulders in flow yoga because of the sequence. Where when I step back, I realize we do a terrible job is strengthening the backside of the shoulder joints. We don't, because of the sequences that are heavily skewed towards down dog plank chaturanga, we don't tend to strengthen the backside. So we don't tend to strengthen the scapular muscles nearly as well, especially the medial and the the bottom scapular muscles. We don't tend to strengthen the lats nearly as well. We don't tend to strengthen the externals and the external rotators and the internal rotators very well. In really simple layman's terms, we tend to strengthen the push muscles of the shoulders much more than we strengthen the pull muscles of the shoulders. And so we have to we have to start to reappraise the sequencing before we even look at the technique. So you mentioned earlier that the fourth part of the shoulder was a pseudo joint, and that was the part that where the scapula connected to the, did you say ribcage? Yes. Okay. I said thorax because I wanted to sound smart. Okay. So, but I'm not. Does that first of all? Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean? What you mean about pseudo joint? Because I'm yeah, sure people are wondering. Sure. And then second of all, does that make it a more vulnerable part of the shoulder than other parts? Great. Two good questions. A joint is where two bones come together, straight up. A joint is where two bones come together. And 
where the scapula and the rib cage come together is not a joint in the truest sense of the word because it's not exactly where two bones come together because there are layers of muscle tissue and connective tissue between them. That's what's connecting them really is this is the tissue, soft tissue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can almost think about this is, I, I hope there's no like real anatomist listening to this because this is sort of like a weird thing that I'm making up, but I think it gets the point across. You can imagine a joint, a true joint being a sandwich with nothing on the inside. It's just two pieces of bread, gluten-free bread for our listeners out there together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that pseudo joint would be where two pieces of bread actually have layers of stuff. They have contents in the sandwich. Okay. So they have the serratus anteriors there, subscapularis is there, and then there's other sort of soft tissues in there. But it functions like a joint, but because there are layers of muscle tissue between them, it's sort of a pseudo joint. Okay. It's joint-esque. Now, you ask about vulnerability. No, the scapula is not vulnerable. The scapula, even though it's a place where we tend to lack strength, the scapula itself is not No, I think vulnerable. I meant like if you're not strong back there, does it make the rest – yes. are you more likely to get injured? Yes. Yeah. If the scapula doesn't pull its own weight, and if we don't – this is going to be the probably the most important tip that we that we get to in a moment, which is if the scapula is malaligned with the upper arm bone – then the upper arm bone is going to take excessive stress. So we have to remember this. The scapula, it provides the socket for the upper arm, the humerus bone. Where the humerus bone and the scapula come together, that joint, which is called the glenohumeral joint or the GH, that's really where the vast majority of shoulder vulnerability exists. And it exists because it is not as structurally stable. And so the soft tissues in there have a, have a greater degree of vulnerability than they do in the hip joint, for example. Does that make sense? Yes. So if the scapular muscles are weak and or malaligned and the upper arm bone is having to do too much with a malaligned mm. scapula, that's where we tend to get stresses, is when, is when we lack cohesiveness between the upper arm and the scapula. Oh, okay. I mean, and we could say this really about the entire body. I mean, it's really when you are lacking cohesiveness between parts where you are more prone to risk, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Your risk factor increases as cohesiveness decreases, which is why yoga should really be from a physical perspective and a psycho-emotional, spiritual perspective, a study in cohesiveness. Mm-hmm. When the humerus bone, when the upper arm bone and the scapula, when they don't, when they're not working well together, that's when there is there tends to be an increased vulnerability. It's very interesting to think of it that way. And one of the most common things, so a couple important tips here. We talked about this in another QA, but I think it's important to address it here, which is The cue that we receive almost invariably in yoga is to draw the shoulder blades down the back, draw Mm -hmm. the shoulder blades down the back, draw the shoulder blades away from the ears. This is a good cue. 
in most poses and in most situations. We know as yoga teachers that we tend that our students tend to hold excess stress in their shoulders and we want to teach our students to release the shoulders down the back. If we know a little bit more, we also know that because the top of the shoulders tend to be so tight, the bottom of the shoulder blades tend to be weak. And so drawing the shoulder blades down and against the back does a couple of really good things. One, it helps relieve tension in the side of the neck. Two, it strengthens the typically weak muscles that are on the bottom and the medial parts, the bottom and the inner part of the scapula. And three, that action of drawing the shoulder blades down and against the back tends to provide more lift and support to the chest, heart, lungs. So scapula down and against the back is also good for the postural position of the rib cage, the heart, lungs. But what's the issue here? The issue is when the arms go above 90 degrees, that changes. This is where yoga teachers have to understand that, and yoga practitioners have to understand that as important as it is for the shoulder blades to draw down and firm against the back, when the arms elevate above 90 degrees, it is a different situation. So meaning above shoulder height. Above shoulder height. Thank you. Yes. When you raise your arm, when you raise your arm, so your arm straight and your elbow and hand go above the height of the shoulders, you are no longer pulling the shoulder blades down. You are allowing the outer border of the shoulder blade to lift and slightly drawing down along the inside. It's very difficult. It's really difficult to, even in a three-hour shoulder workshop, let alone, you know, 20, 30, 40-minute podcast, Mm -hmm. it's difficult to really parse this. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that when the shoulder, when the arm goes above shoulder height, the scapula needs to laterally rotate. When the scapula laterally rotates, the outer border of the scapula has to elevate. It has to elevate. And so if we're pulling the shoulder blades down too hard or too strong or not drawing the inner border down, but but engaging lats and trying to pull the outside down, even though the lats don't pull the scapula down, but if we're trying to pull down on the outside of the shoulder blades while we're raising the arms up, we are setting ourselves up for a world of hurt. Wouldn't that just lim- really grossly limit your mobility, though? Yes. Your ability to. Huh. So, what do you actually see? Like, what kinds of injuries do you see when when people do? Uh, I don't want to say injuries, but I want to say, what does this stress? And then, what are the potential complications from this? So, I'll sort of say injuries, but in a very beating around the bushes. Politic. Yeah, <laughs> but accurate. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just being politic; it's okay. it's also being accurate when the scapula laterally rotates and the arm elevates. That is called glenohumeral rhythm, okay? When you interrupt that rhythm, which is usually by when the arms are elevated too strongly pulling the shoulder blades down, which is not in anyone's best interest, then you increase the likelihood of creating excess compression where the upper arm and the scapula meet. And you run the risk of agitating part of the rotator cuff muscle that's there. And also some of the tendons, including biceps tendons that are there. So this is a really common setup. People elevate their arms. They're told to pull the shoulder blades down away from their ears. 
They're elevating the arms now against the resistance of the scapula, which are being pulled down, which is they're not supposed to be pulled down, not abruptly. And that creates stress in the rotator cuff muscles, one rotator cuff muscle in particular. Which one would that be? The infraspinatus. So how do you adjust instructionally? Like, right. I mean, you obviously don't want someone lifting their arms overhead and hunching their traps up toward their ears. Like so, like I'm I don't. demonstrating. So how do you how do you balance that? Two things. First, I remind everyone that there are muscle groups whose only job is to elevate the scapula. One of them is called the levator scapula. So I actually truly believe that there are situations where what we think of as hunching the shoulders up towards the ears is actually perfectly reasonable. But let me back off that point for a moment. What we want to do, and describing rotation is really difficult. I don't know if you remember, this is the one real argument that you and I had when you were my editor at Yoga Journal, which was describing the action of the upper arm. I remember this so clearly, which was describing the action of the upper arm in Downward Facing Dog. It was in my Down Dog Basics article. Okay. And what I was saying was, you are rotating the bicep away from the ear. And what you were saying is you should be rotating it towards the ear. Nuh-uh. Yes, yes. And <clears throat> yes. I was a dummy. No, no, no. You weren't a dummy. You weren't a dummy. But here's the point. Describing rotation is very difficult because rotation, we have to understand. Who was the, my yoga teacher at no, that No, no, no. Listen. <laughs> what you were seeing was something different is we were, we were in our mind, we were envisioning a different point of origin. Sure. Okay. Okay. So I was thinking someone that was a little more open and their bicep is already in line with their ear and I want them to rotate it more. You were thinking about someone that was a little tighter and their bicep wasn't even rotated towards the ear yet. Wow. Okay. Okay. So anyways, long story short, describing rotation is really difficult. So when we're describing the rotation of the scapula, what we have to understand is the outside of the scapula elevates, but the top inner border of the scapula descends. When we say draw the shoulder blade away from the ear, is part of that correct? Yeah, one part is correct. The inner border should pull a little down, but the outer border needs to be able to lift up. So the way that I communicate it is this. I don't even, to my students, say shoulder blade. I say stretch up through the outside of your armpit and reach through the ring finger, then gently draw down along the side of your neck. And this is the way that I find for most people, they, they get it best. Or I just say there's a sweet spot where you're not fully elevating the shoulder blade and you're not fully depressing the shoulder blade. Elevate it to its maximum first and then bring it down just a little bit till those traps aren't overfiring. I think you should get like, you should go to a seamstress and get a whole bunch of wings sewn. <laughs> And like the tips of the wings would attach to your ring fingers. And then you could like, I'm, maybe I've been spending too much time with a four and a half year old. I don't know. You, yeah, but, yeah. No, but really, I mean, when you think about the way an, a bird with a very large wingspan, when you think about them unfurling their wings, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the outer part of the wing moves out. Uh-huh. But, but the inside of the shoulder doesn't appear to yeah, hunch up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the back spreads. Outward. Yes. Yeah. I'm with you. 
that was a sort of crazy moment, but I think it was luminous. It was a little bit of a woo-woo moment, but, but was, I always yeah, think worse. of it as wings. Yeah, so the problem is that when people don't split that atom and when the arms are elevated and they're told to pull the shoulder blades down and they, and they pull down on the outside of the shoulder blade or they pull down too much, it's a setup for compression issues. Now, I will say this before we move on from this part of the topic, which is... I give this example in, in my trainings all the time. Then this is the setup, right? Because it's always the afternoon and I'm tired and I'm a little crazy. And I say, imagine some of someone in this room was kind enough to get me a second cup of coffee. And they brought it in, and yet they were cruel enough to set it on a ledge just a little bit out of my reach. How would I reach for it? Would I draw my shoulder blade down? down my back, pull my shoulder blade <laughs> down my back and then reach my arm up and think to myself, oh, I can't reach it. I need to go get a step stool. Or would I just reach? I would just reach. I would just reach. And then when I brought my shoulder back down, are you afraid that my shoulder would stay stuck to my ear? No. When the arms go overhead to reach, they reach and the scapula elevates and the scapula is a mobile joint for a reason. And one of the main reasons it's a mobile joint is to reach. So when it's time to reach, reach. Overreaching and overfiring traps is, although maybe not perfect, is probably for the shoulder joint itself, actually a much more healthy, normal, stable human thing than to too strongly pull the shoulder blades down when the arms go overhead. Interesting. It is. Yeah. No, I mean, I that you have that. muscle groups that just do that. The levator scapula. Right. It elevates the scapula. So we just have to know it's that shoulder blades down. That's tip number one. Shoulder blades down and against the back is so valuable for the reasons that we spoke about earlier. But tip number two, when the arm elevates above the shoulder, it's a different dynamic. We need the shoulder blades to be able to rotate Maybe we don't want to hunch them up so much that the scapula or that the the sides of the neck overfire, but pulling the shoulder blades down too strongly when the arm's overhead is a much bigger liability mm-hmm. for the socket itself. Okay. Yeah. That's Great. the second tip. Great. Yes. Third tip, which is especially in vinyasa-based yoga, you know, we're doing a lot of planks. We're doing a lot of planks and we're doing a lot of chaturangs and we're doing a lot of up dogs. And I'll own it. I practice those poses a lot. I teach those poses a lot. I like them. The reason I like chaturanga, up dog, down dog is because of the rhythm, right? It's just a really rhythmic, it's, I, I like the timing and the rhythm of that vinyasa combination. But the reality is that chaturanga is a really stressful physical pose. Even for people that have strong, well-aligned shoulders, it's a tough pose to do you know, 30 times a class if you practice regularly. So number one, I think we can stand a few less chaturanga up dog, down dogs in our flow practice. And we could use more locust poses and cobra poses. The nice thing about this is this gets back to the the relative distribution of strengthening. We tend to strengthen the front of the shoulders, the top of the shoulders and the chest a ton. And the reality is, if you're doing an excellent chaturanga, you're also working scapula. You really are. But more often than not, if there's a little error in chaturanga, we're not working the scapular muscles as well. And so taking a few of the chaturangas and the updogs out 
It's probably a good thing in and of itself. Not to castigate those poses, but it's a frequency issue. And then the second thing is to replace them with posterior shoulder strengthening poses. Locust, 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 locust. The downside about doing locust and cobra is they're not as rhythmic. The they're timing is rhythmic. I think I think the attachment to them comes probably possibly from the rhythm, but I think it also comes from this perception that they are just quote unquote lesser poses, yeah. right? That like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The up dog is a deeper backbend. Yeah. It's a more Which beautiful backbend. Cobra is a, a deeper backbend. It's than a pretty, up-dog. you know, it's it's a more advanced backbend. And to that I say, let's not focus on the on the end point. Let's let's focus on like working the body wisely. Yeah. So I, and I mean, sustainably yeah. and, and in a balanced way, which is really the focus, the large focus of the summer series is let's take a step back. Let's revise. This is something that I've been talking to you a lot. I've been talking to my teachers a lot about is all disciplines owe it to their discipline and to their students to revise to step back to look at the data and say, hey man, is this is this still this thing that we said 50 years ago? Like <laughs> in what other science does the thing that was said the longest period of time ago hold the greatest amount of weight? None. Yeah. I mean, you look at the social sciences, you look at the biomedical sciences, the things that Nutrition, were said even like yeah. 60 years ago <laughs> are crazy. Well, it's like Tiffany Cruikshank and I talking about growing up in the 80s where Fat was like the enemy, and right. our parents gave us sugar right. because it was low fat, right. like snack wells. Crazy. It's my favorite. It's crazy time. Um, so we need to revise that. And so as yoga practitioners and teachers, do we have to say, oh, chaturanga is bad, up dog's bad? No. Do we need to get rid of any else? No, that's ridiculous. But it is our responsibility to step back and revise and look at regions of the body like we're doing here and say, I talk about balance all the time is this really balanced for this joint? And it's not just a technique issue. It is a sequencing issue. It is a, it is a relative allotment of time that's given to poses that work the front and the top of the shoulders versus the relative amount of time that's given to poses that strengthen the back of the shoulders. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not even close. Yeah. It's not so, even close. So for teachers, um, obviously the message is to, to think about incorporating this into your um, sun salutation sequence. And then for students, the message is if you're practicing at home, mm-hmm. you know, insert cobra or locust in place of up dog in the beginning of your practice or a few times, if you're in the classroom, don't be afraid to do Cobra or Locust, even if everyone else is doing up dog. And I will say as a person who, you know, I talk a lot about how I'm not a natural backbender. It takes me a really long time to feel warm, even just from a proprioception perspective, doing uh, Locust and Cobra in the beginning of practice, just activates my upper back in a way that just feels healthier through the rest of the practice. Totally. It's just like those muscles are then firing. I want to say it's, I think it's so important that you brought up earlier that people feel like sometimes that the alternatives are lesser than at this phase of my practice, those alternatives, locust and Cobra are way harder for me than up dog. Yeah. Like I can, I can fall asleep in up dog. Like to me, that is the easiest pose on the planet because my arms are straight and there's not that much happening because I've trained that pose for so long. But if I do a bunch of locusts, I do a bunch of cobra or, and then I do a bunch of sort of 
sphinx pose roll up to forearm plank, which is another thing that I'll intersperse in instead of all the chaturangas. Even just from a purely physical workout perspective, that now feels like cross training. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so in my classes, and that's one thing I, I really hammer home with, with the teachers I train is to, is to understand these dynamics and to not be f- afraid of using these. But also another thing that, that you've taught me through the editorial world is qualify the benefit. Tell the students early, like those of you that are teachers listening, if you want to start to incorporate more of these alternatives, tell the students early on the value of it. You know, I, I do all the time. I say, look, you guys, the first six to eight salutations we're going to do, we're going to the floor and we're doing locust. And that isn't because you're not able to do chaturanga and up dog. It's in order to strengthen the complementary muscle group that we just aren't accessing nearly enough in the way that modern vinyasa yoga defaults ad nauseum to mm-hmm. just another chaturanga. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Those are the big ones. Those are really, really, really the important things to work with for sure. Cool. Those are those are good tips. Good. Yay. Keep your shoulders sane. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's so helpful. And don't forget to subscribe so that you automatically get a new episode as soon as it is uploaded. Until next week, enjoy your practice.